This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Barbara Brown Taylor. Barbara is a New York Times best-selling author, professor, and Episcopal priest. Her first memoir, Leaving Church, won a 2006 Author of the Year Award from the Georgia Writers Association. Her latest book, Learning to Walk in the Dark, was featured in Time magazine. She has served on the faculty of Piedmont College since 1998 as the Butman Professor of Religion and Philosophy and has been a guest lecturer at Emory, Duke, Princeton, and Yale. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Barbara and I spoke about appreciating the power of divine absence as well as divine presence. We talked about the value of spending time in darkness, both literal and metaphoric, and what it might mean to have a conversation with darkness. We also talked about busyness and the role of the Sabbath in balancing our life. And finally, the importance of recognizing that we are all already blessed. Here's my conversation with Barbara Brown Taylor. Barbara, I wanted to begin with a quote from your book, Leaving Church. And here's the quote. Loss is how we come to surrender our lives. And I wanted to start with this topic of loss and, if you will, the value of loss on the spiritual journey, because it's something that people don't talk about a lot. And I think it's so important. It's been so important in my own life. And to begin, I wonder if you would talk a little bit about how you see the value of loss on the spiritual journey. Most uh, importantly, I suppose, it's a cure for omnipotence or any fantasy that we can make life be what we want it to be. I've spent plenty of time trying to um, make life what I want it to be, but whether loss comes in the form of a parent who walks into a child's room and says, we're moving again, or the loss of a family pet, the loss of a vocation, a beloved one, health, um, all of those have been occasions for me to um, surrender, not control, but surrender the illusion of control. And uh, while I would not have chosen and didn't particularly enjoy any of them, I wouldn't give a single one back. You talk about the power of becoming familiar, not just with the divine presence, but with divine absence. And I think that's such a powerful idea. And talk to me about the times in your life where you've felt divine absence or any kind of absence. And how did it become divine absence? <laughs> that's a great question. Uh, I think I'm a human being, which means the the earliest stories about divine absence were praying for things that didn't happen, whether they were noble things or stupid things, they didn't happen. And that translated early on as the absence of God. Um, I think later I became subject to descriptions of what it was supposed to feel like, sound like, be like when God was present. And when my life didn't line up with that description, I experienced what I called the absence of God. It really wasn't until I started working on a book called When God is Silent that I both combed um, not only my scriptures but other scriptures and began to discover the ways in which silence is an ancient language of God. And if one wants to call that absence, um, I began to decide that uh, to be still and to be quiet and to have no answer 
And to not know what was coming next was not a matter of being abandoned, but maybe a matter of being as close to the heart of things as I could be. So I think the short answer is I gave up a lot of my expectations about what the presence of God should be like. Okay, but let's say someone's listening and they're in a period in their life where they've been praying for some kind of response, some kind of guidance, and they're not getting anything. And, you know, they're just feeling despairing about that. Sounds wonderful to appreciate the silence, but they're not. Get out of the house would be my first advice. I mean, praying for something that doesn't come sounds very, very lonely to me. Uh, I can't walk to the mailbox without being rescued from um, my worst temptations if I keep my eyes open. And I'm, I'm you know, again, we, we can, I should probably start right off by saying everything I'm going to talk about in this conversation is going to be about a level five on a scale of one to ten, because in a program of this length, I don't think I can go all the way down to the basement nor all the way up to the heavens. So I'm not talking about clinical depression, kinds of mental illness that um, are crying out for intervention, um, maybe chemical rebalancing, but at the level five of I am wanting, 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 wanting things to be different than they are, and they simply will not budge, um, I accept that as um, its own answer, uh, which means it's probably time to give up on whatever that is. And again, I'd love to get specific. It, it could be, again, a voice, a direction, an answer, uh, open the Bible, point to the verse, and there is what I wanted. It may be love, it may be a child, it may be a different job, it may be more money than I'm making. But I guess we'd have to talk in some cases about what's being prayed for because there's a kind of hierarchy of needs at, at the spiritual level as well as the psychological level. I guess what I'm getting at is those times in our life where the truth is we do feel abandoned. Like that's how we feel for some reason. We feel abandoned by God. We feel alone. And your suggestion here to get up out of the house, I'd like to hear more about that, why you're suggesting that. Uh, personal experience? <laughs> I guess a couple of years ago, and it was during the darkest part of the year, I probably hit a real late-life low point and did all the interior work I knew how to do, from silent meditation to inspirational reading to playing with a Jack Russell Terrier to cooking good meals. And I'm a pretty solitary person, so I thought I'd just go against the grain and do uncharacteristic things. And, and for me, that meant getting out of the house. It meant, um, oh, heaven forbid, you know, joining a, a yoga group in town where people could see what rotten shape I was in, and it meant uh, connecting with friends I had lost touch with. It meant doing things that might have looked like distraction, but for me they were, it's like I'd been swimming in one direction, and it just got deeper and lonelier. So uh, getting out of the house at least... Um, changed my day enough for there eventually, after months and months, um, to become the the possibility of um, the planet turning toward the sun again, I guess. So again, I'm, I'm so reluctant to answer questions like that when I don't know who's being abandoned by what. Yeah, yeah, it's hard in general. I always think, though, I'm always imagining in terms of who might be listening to these insights at the edge conversations, that there's someone out there who's suffering. I'm always imagining that person and mm -hmm. wanting to provide them with something that will be nourishing. And so when I hear something like a positive framing of the silence of God, mm -hmm. I think of that person who's not in a positive frame around that silence. So that's kind of what I'm trying to bring forward. There's, there are a lot of helpers, um, and a bunch of them are on your program. Um, I have, at times like that, taken over God's voice and said what I wished God would say. When I encounter the silence of God, I sometimes go to a questionnaire. What am I afraid will happen if I don't hear the voice of God? I, I go to worst case. There are other times, again, I get out of the house. There are 
Um, other times I have a few go-to friends or books that will at least help me hold my place because for most of us things don't stay the same. You know, for most of us, um, even those of us reluctant to use words like hope, um, there's always the, the wisdom easy to test that today is rarely exactly like tomorrow. And um, so sometimes I just uh, I look for um, placeholders and have learned my own warning signals well enough and some of the handholds I can hold on to while the world turns. And again, if the world doesn't turn in a couple of weeks, if the world hasn't turned in a month, it's time to um, get better help, Mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. Now, Barbara, in your book, Leaving Church, you tell the story of how you became the pastor of a small congregation in rural Georgia, and then how you left that position and left formal life as a member of the clergy, officially. And I wonder if you can explain to our listeners a little bit about why you left that role, what was happening in your life that caused you to leave? Sure. And the role I left was a congregational minister. I'm still clergy and still operate that way, but I'm a college teacher day by day by day for 17 years now. But like any life story, there are probably 10 ways to tell this one. But I I went uh, from a big city church intentionally to a small rural church to see how everything from language to pastoral care to you know, celebration of birthdays and hymn singing would change. And I loved it for four out of five years. Um, But um, we grew, and it was an exciting place to be. And this little church with very few resources and not too many people started an awful lot of new things in town um, that brought more and more people to our doors. And the catch was we worshipped in a beautiful little sanctuary that held 80 people when it was full. So in an odd way, succeeding ended up souring the the soup in a serious way, Um, whether it was people not being able to find their regular seats or having to contemplate the possibility of going into debt to build a larger space. And I think the bottom line is uh, uh, the romantic in me hit the wall uh, and the prophet in me asked for a direction and didn't get one. And the congregational minister in me looked around and saw that I might be part of the problem instead of part of the solution. So I left, and I found a great place to land, and I think that um, the parish would say they did fine, too. We just ended up um, not going in the direction we had thought we would go together. I hope that's not too vague. Leaving church has details. (laughs) Well, you said that you suspected that perhaps you were part of the problem. Tell me why. I don't know how to talk about this exactly. I had gotten some acclaim for my public speaking, and that brought visitors. And I was teaching at schools and seminaries here and there, and that brought visitors and interest. And um, I think there began to be in the minds of some parishioners sort of a conflict between... um, whether I was there for them or for um, all of these other people who were showing up, I don't know. I, it, it, it was a great lesson in how sometimes when you want to succeed and be great at what you do, that cannot um, create the best outcome. <laughs> so it was an extremely humbling event to find that out. Mm-hmm. But I'm happy doing what I'm doing. Also. Uh, maybe in a way we were talking about earlier, sort of the worst happened, and I didn't finish out my time there the way I thought I would, and found myself standing in front of a classroom of people trying to figure out how to be and do something new at the age of 40-plus, and that ended up being almost a rebirth, almost a woke back up on the operating table and got another chance. Mm -hmm. Do you have a sense that churches in general, and I know this is a big statement, but that churches in general are needing to evolve in a certain kind of way in today's spiritual landscape in order to stay relevant in people's life? I visit an awful lot of churches, coast to coast, small and large um, 
churches in the in the crowd who call themselves emerging Christians and good old time mainline Christians. So I see it all, and I see um, churches some who are even doing both. You know, they're having traditional things in the morning and then doing um, quiet, contemplative, Celtic kind of candles in the dark, people lying on pews and under the altar things at night and. Um, I think um, I, I I think again it comes back to where is the church and what kind of community who's coming who's not um, I I know aging churches that are serving their aging congregations beautifully and they'll be out of business in a, about twenty years but meanwhile they're doing exactly what they ought to be doing the whole community's dying or shifting and then i know others that have um so changed what they do that they've um gotten rid of buildings and official clergy and microphones and the whole thing so f- from my point of view it's a frightening time for people who knew their way around the old landscape it's a pretty exciting time in terms of um the norms are all but gone you know or there's such a variety of new norms that uh, there's hardly an experiment not worth doing right now now, Barbara, you talked about your quote-unquote success, if you will, in this small if church. If you will, put quotes around that, yeah. Yeah, and how that generated quite an audience. And in doing research for this conversation, I learned that you were named one of the 12 most effective preachers in the English-speaking world by Baylor University. And that's that's <laughs> and qu- that'll ruin every sermon you give from then on. <laughs> yeah, I bet. That's quite a thing. I mean, when I when I read that, I was like, you know, oh my God, what's it going to be like to hear or put some sentences together? This is going to, you know, I'm going to fall off my chair. So first of all, I'm curious, what do you think makes an effective preacher in general? And how do you think you won such a claim? Well, um, I mean, the answer to that is everybody on that list had some kind of print, radio, or TV arm, and I had a print arm, so any you know whoever answered the survey knew of the people on that list because they were not they were not strictly doing their jobs at home they had some kind of public outreach so so i think the big surprise was i was the only woman on the list and that even surprised baylor which i don't think at that point officially believed <laughs> in ordained women um but in, in as to your question about effective preaching it baffles me i've never taught preaching full time i've been invited to but I have listened to um, people who, who I think speak effectively about um, living at a deep level. And some of them are clergy, but a lot of them are on the Moth Radio Hour or giving TED Talks. I listen to a lot of public radio to learn what makes um, for effective speaking. But it seems to me that, you know, just given the responses from a couple of congregations that it had to do with talking in a real voice about recognizable things and um, saying what could be said and leaving unsaid what could not be said and uh, not, um, I don't know, not daring people to, you know, go way, way further than their lives gave them any evidence to go, but uh, affirming a lot of human experience as being what blessed already blessed not needing extra blessedness just needing um eyes to see the blessedness that was already there that that again is in a culture a christian culture where original sin um, can be talked about quite a lot that's a beautiful phrase already blessed that's beautiful mm-hmm. now a big part of my inspiration to have this conversation with you is because I'm a fan of your book, Learning to Walk in the Dark. And in it, you talk about something you call lunar spirituality as distinct from solar spirituality. So tell us what you mean by lunar spirituality. I think I probably slightly stole that from David White, W-H-Y-T-E, the poet, um, because he wrote a wonderful book many, many years ago, and it was really about the soul in the workplace, and he talked about the workplace as being a solar environment where one is called upon to shine like the sun all the time. And I went back to to be sure I hadn't plagiarized him, but he certainly gave me the idea, and I began, um, I don't know, I guess I chewed on that idea for 10 years and moved to the country 
lost a lot of my fear of the dark just from the change in my physical location, began to experiment with literally walking in the dark more, and I discovered the moon. Uh, learned its names, learned its phases, learned all the things I could see by the light of even a tiny, tiny moon, and that opened up the whole idea of a lunar spirituality, where what is up in the sky changes every single night, never the same twice. In fact, moon entirely gone for three days every month. That seemed very different to me from the kind of solar spirituality that was always... um, I don't know, wanting the 24-7 shininess of the self and the divine and the neighbor. So lunar spirituality seemed truer to my experience at every level, physical, emotional, psychological. So I jumped on it and wrote a book. Now, when you say you learned the names of the moon, I mean, there's the full moon and the new moon. Does the moon have more names than that? It has so many names. There are, there are. Um, it seems like every Native American tribe had a different name for the moon. Of course, depending on whether it was a way north New York um, nation or if it was a Florida nation. But I found um, two or three different Native American names for the moon. I found old English names for the moon. So it all depends on what's happening under the moon at night. It's harvest moons and um, blue moons and. Um, cricket moons and milk moons, and I wish I had my list in front of me. I'd charm you the rest of our time, giving you all the different names. But I think it supports my point. You know, the moon, she is different. She's different every night. She has all kinds of dresses in her closet, where the sun, except for the clouds, wears the same gold dress every day. Now, talk to me some about spending time in literal darkness and how that helped give you insight into what we could call the metaphorical dark periods of our life. Yes, and I got to watch that metaphor because it's it's a deep one and I, I suppose the first thing I noticed is that darkness is an abstract word. I guess it's an abstract word. I mean, I can certainly cover my eyes with my hands and manufacture darkness, but wow, does it carry metaphorical weight for people. Dark moods, dark emotions, dark times. Um I think you have had a hand in a book called Darkness Before Dawn where darkness is a synonym for depression. Mm-hmm. And I certainly found that was true and yet as I um I don't deny any of those meanings. They come easily to my lips even now. But as I, again, would be patient with the darkness where I live now, I would find how much light there was in it and how many things I could see I could not see in full light. As someone pointed out, they're mostly lit things like moons and fireflies and comets and <laughs> lightning strikes. So they're mostly eruptions of light in the dark. But there's, they're not things that are visible by the full light of day. So the metaphor became, um, if I could walk in the literal dark much better than I thought I could, not only by the little bit of light available, but also through bringing up huge reserves of resources from other senses that were usually cut off because my eyes are such good workers, that there might be something true about that at the spiritual and emotional levels of my life as well, that I could get by on less than I thought, um, that if I would not put so much energy into bringing the dark to an end, lighting it automatically, lighting it quickly before unwanted angels started asking me questions or bouncing on the bed, that that there might be something to be gained from that. And as I say in the book, um, people ask me all the time, how long do I have to do that? And I say, you don't have to do it at all, but you might do it for one breath more than you think you can stand it. That would be plenty. So I never, never want to override people's instincts about their own safety or you know, what what is good for them. They know far better than I do, since we all have our own histories of darkness. But I did find in my own case, I had a great, much greater capacity for uh, being in the dark and finding treasure in the dark and embrace in the dark and silence in the dark that was healing and not frightening. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. 
we welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive two free gifts just for visiting us. Just go to soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. That's soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. And now, back to Insights at the Edge. Now, I thought a very interesting part of the book, Learning to Walk in the Dark, had to do with your comments about the invention of the electric light bulb, the electric light, and how that has changed us as a culture. And and I wonder if you can talk to our listeners about that. It's a very recent experience, and there are plenty of good books on it. Um, there's You can go to the Dark Sky Association's website and learn quite a lot. You can find out about not only the darkest places on Earth, but the lightest places on Earth, and how uh, many of us are participating in a science experiment we never gave permission to participate in. Uh, uh, last time I checked, 24-7 light was being identified as a carcinogen, uh, with more and more medical evidence coming in about what sleep deprivation and disturbed sleep architecture does in terms of increasing levels of everything from diabetes, heart disease, to anxiety. I think the statistic that knocked my socks off was that women who work night shifts have a 50% greater vulnerability to breast cancer than women who don't. Mm-hmm. I I found that in two different sources. Now, I've not followed it up with the American Medical Association, but the bottom line is this light that comforts these lit screens we spend so much in front time in front of it may not be as good friends to us as we think they are. It, it begins to raise the question of what we are doing to ourselves literally by cutting ourselves off from full natural periods of dark and light. And how did this information change your approach to sleep? I'm not there yet. I mean, here's the best I've done so far. What I would love to do if I were my ideal human being is that I would perhaps use electric light long enough to get dinner on the table by about 7.30. But in the same way, I live on an organic vegetable farm and we try to eat locally. It would be really interesting to try to sleep seasonally. And in other words, to sleep um, less in the summer and more in the winter and really ditch the electric lights um, no later than, say, 9 o'clock, and, and live with some of the twilight that turns out to be one of the most potent times for human consciousness between waking and sleeping, um, which typically comes at going to sleep time, at waking up time, and then I guess when human beings were in the dark for long periods of time, it also happened in the middle. But I'm not my ideal human being, so the best I can do is douse them at 10. And if that means a couple of hours of lying in the dark, so be it. Hmm. Now, you, you talk in the book about actually having a conversation with darkness, that that's valuable to have a conversation with darkness. How might you suggest someone go about having such a conversation? Well, first I'll name Clark Strand. Again, I get my ideas from other people sometimes, and he wrote a wonderful article in, is it called Tricycle or Tricycle? I've never known the right way to pronounce that magazine. Tricycle, yeah. Tricycle? Yeah. He um, he suggested a, a darkness retreat, and I just picked it up and didn't do it for the length of time he did, but that was one of his suggestions is, Um, it was to go, in my case, just 24 hours with no artificial light, which is a long time at the summer solstice. No, it's a short time at the summer solstice, which is why I picked that. But it was still plenty of time to um, have time on my hands. (laughs) I didn't find a whole lot to say to the dark, but he did suggest that if you became impatient, you could go ahead and talk back to it, tell it what you were concerned about. I think that's what I was playing with earlier when I said, if, if God doesn't talk, go ahead and play God's part just to see what comes out of your mouth. So um, I, again, have found talking back to the dark often ends up being a talk about what I'm frightened of. And I guess we've all got different muscles of how far we can go with that. Ultimately, death and losing everything I love. I go there pretty fast. But it's... uh, 
<laughs> the truth. There, there's reality in that. And I think, speaking of muscles, it's one that a lot of us could work on because our running isn't serving us very well. This is an opportunity for me to bring up one of the quotes from Learning to Walk in the Dark that I'd love to hear you comment on. I thought it was so beautiful. And here's the quote from the book. At this point in my life, I'm more afraid of what I might leave out instead of what I might let in. <laughs> yes. Yes, I I, uh, I think for a lot of years of my life, fear does that. You know, fear... Fear for me has always functioned to be a guard at the gate, to be a filter, to be a censor, to decide what's harmful, what's not, what can come in, what can't. But, wow, is it hypervigilant. It's a hypervigilant guard. So I think, as you said, later in life, now what's probably the the last third of my life, it's become much more um, a, a better use of my time to risk encountering some of what I formerly might have uh, called dangerous strangers. There's so so many of the ones I let in are not as dangerous as I thought or as dangerous as I've been told. So it kind of comes down to fear, doesn't it? I mean, a, a lot of my a lot of my writing is about w- what most frightens us, I suppose. Uh, and you started out with loss, uh, however we parse that. Um and I suppose in some of what I'm saying, you can hear that I'm a unofficial you know, student of Buddhism, which says that reality can't finally hurt me. But my fear of reality can hurt me a lot. Now, and I'm not living, I'm not living in a refugee camp, and I don't have children being battered by their parent, and um, there are a lot of butts in that. But again, I'm talking about a level five kind of garden variety, um, trying to get along. Now, when you say dangerous strangers, that's an interesting phrase. And I wonder if you could give me some examples of what letting in what you thought were dangerous strangers, what that might be like for you. Well, I'm going to let me I'm going to pull a 180 and we both might get whiplash, but I teach world religions um for a living and certainly in the five religions that I introduce students to, Islam is the one that uh is the most frightening. Uh to the point that students signed up for a field trip may be talked out of going by peers or family members who just don't want them going, don't want them exposed. Um, to a room full of Muslims, and um, those would certainly qualify as dangerous strangers to a lot of my students now, and and probably did when I first started teaching because I didn't know many Muslims either. But through a complete fluke, I ended up in a masjid on the Friday after 9/11. So I heard my first sermon about those airplanes flying through the Twin Towers from an imam, and that um, dangerous stranger turned into my pastor in a way I've never forgotten. So um, I guess I've tried to stop believing the world the headlines present to me and have tried to engage both um, my critical thinking and my willingness to travel whether it's across the yard or across town, to um, to decide more what the world I live in is like beyond the headlines. You know what I mean? We get so much of our idea of the world from the headlines, and then we live in that world, and it is so seldom the world we live in day by day by day. That makes a lot of sense, in ter- and I didn't get whiplash, incidentally. Uh, I'm I'm doing just fine. Uh, But in terms of dangerous strangers on the outside, that makes sense. I'm curious what a dangerous stranger might be like on the inside for you. I guess Carl Jung did the best with that, didn't he? I mean, the shadow and, oh, oh, I mean, hold my feet to the fire. I mean, my shadow is a sloppy, lazy, some days she's that. Other days um, she's just a crone, although I've become kind of happy with the crone lately. 
but the 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 dangerous stranger inside is whatever I have invested the hugest amount of my time and energy into not being and the older I get, uh, the more variations there are on that theme. Uh, so, so that uh, speaks to interior work, and also I think um, again having a, a sane community around me of some kind, either self-made or already out there waiting for me to become part of it, to um, kind of steady me while I'm walking warily around some of those dangerous strangers inside. Now, you you mentioned that you live on a farm now. And I know in the book, Learning to Walk in the Dark, one of the topics you address is busyness and how busy many of us seem to be in contemporary life. And, you know, I I wonder what it's like living on a farm. It could still be super busy. I mean, you could be busy doing (laughs) farm tours all the time, even if it looks different than you know, contemporary work life for some people. But anyway, I'm curious what your relationship is to busyness now in uh-huh. your life. Oh, you can be just as busy here as you can anywhere. I just had a friend from the city come, and she sat on my front porch, and we looked at Mount Yona and the fireflies coming out in the trees. She said, what would it be like to live here? And I said, you'd be at the computer You'd be cleaning the cat boxes. You'd be cleaning out the refrigerator. You'd be doing the laundry. Busyness is um, not a function of our environments, I don't think. Though I do have what I think of as this huge medicine cabinet right out my front door. Headache, um, shortness of breath, whatever I have. If I'll just go out and sit for a bit, it's um, very steadying panorama out there. So busyness, um, I don't know any cure for it, um, but what the old-timers called Sabbath and what younger people call downtime. And there is absolutely nothing in the culture I can think of that will sanction that. So it's a very difficult thing to do. Um, I can't think of a thing in the culture that tells us to slow down. Yoga class, maybe. What do you think? Probably depends on the teacher. But, yeah, there's a there's a possibility. <laughs> Yeah, I'm just trying to think. I mean, it's it's one way where synagogue, masjid, church, you know, temple, it is a place um, to enjoy what one of my favorite writers called a royal waste of time, to be still, um, hold still, not be productive for a period of time if you can find the right place. But we don't have much else in our lives that I can think of that sanctions the opposite of busyness. Mostly it's more and more faster, faster. And that, like too much light, is killing us. Did you have to introduce a discipline in your life to the discipline of a Sabbath day, a 24-hour rest period? Or how have you addressed busyness? Um, I have addressed it largely by deciding, and I could only do this after I left congregational ministry, that Saturdays would be a day of um, I mean, no Jew would recognize it as Sabbath, but um, a day of no buying and selling, and no driving, um, no catalogs, that's buying and selling, no computers, um, no work, no, no cat litter pans, but a day of enjoyment, a day to live as if all my work were done. And I've had long, long periods of enjoying that discipline, but I keep it in intact by myself, so there is no community near me, no community I am part of, not even, there's probably an online community, but I don't want to keep Sabbath in front of a computer. So it's, again, a real challenge for anyone interested in those disciplines to find even a small cadre of people who are willing to ask you how it's going. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, I'm asking you about it because I notice it's a, a real challenge in my life, and I notice most of my friends, I mean, they claim, we claim we want unstructured time, and yet we don't create any of it. And then when we do, we're just, we just get busy again. Isn't that wonderful? So we know we don't really want it. I mean, mostly our lives will tell us what we really want. But it's another great time to, you know, pull out the self-questionnaire of, and, and wow, have I done that questionnaire of what am I afraid of? What will happen if I am not busy today? What will happen if I have time on my hands? What will happen 
you know, if I don't file everything in the file basket within the 30 days that my time management book says I should. And it's, uh, for me, again, fear-driven of what will happen. But I, this is truly where I do, I am religious and not spiritual at this point because I do think the great religions of the world have got a good bit to say about hallowed, sanctioned times of non-busyness, whether they're festival times of eating and drinking and being with other people or still in quiet times. Um, they've got a lot of wisdom about that that the culture seems to have lost. Now, one of the themes, Barbara, that it seems to me runs through all of your books, at least the handful of books of yours that I've read, is a question of faith, questioning faith, exploring faith, looking at it upside down and every which way from Sunday, if you will. (laughs) And I'm curious to know if you were to speak right now in this moment about faith in your life, what would you say is your faith? Yeah, see, that's an incomplete sentence. I mean, in my mind, because it's got to be faith in, you know, faith at what will happen, faith at what won't happen, faith in whom, faith in. So I I break the word down to trust, and I've pretty much cleaned house, or I'm at least in a pretty clean house period right now of trusting that life is basically for me, um, trusting that uh, whatever happens, will teach me something. Note, please, that I am stopping far short of saying, you know, that God will is making things happen or teaching me things. I don't, I don't, that's not part of my consciousness. But I, um, faith is a huge, naive trust that life is basically for me, that most people do not mean me harm, that I can make, a, a difference in a few people's lives by listening and being present and writing a book now and then. Um, so it's very, it's naive, but that's that's the trust, is that life is basically for me. Um, most people don't mean me harm, and I can do some good, both alone and in community with some other people. And that seems like enough to live on most of the time. Now, this phrase that you're using, life is for me, what do you mean by that? I mean, let's go straight to story. I mean, when I go in for a mammogram and the doc calls me back and says, we need to see you again, there's a problem. And I start to spiral that if I can catch my breath, um, I have, this is going to be so heady, even though I've lived through it. But if I can catch my breath, and this happened to me not too long ago, waiting on a table for the umpteenth sonogram, that um, it was very weird to be lying on that table waiting for the report. And it was as if in my mind a door opened, and I walked through it, and, and imaginatively there were all these women living with breast cancer either past, present, or in whatever stage, and they welcomed me. And they said, here's your chair, come in. You know, we've got all all kinds of stories to tell you. And it was a, a remarkable moment of life, I don't know, opening a door where it looked like a wall. And I did not get a diagnosis that day that put me in a room like that, but it, I now know there's a room like that. I kind of knew it. Now I really know it. So that's an example, and I'm um, not living with breast cancer, but it was a surprise that even the the worst kind of thing at that point um, had a, a – there were, there were people to welcome me who'd been there, walked that, and might uh, find a chair for me. That seems like life being for me. Hmm. Now, you mentioned, Barbara, being a crone at this point ah. in your life. And I'm curious what that means to you and, and how you know you've passed into the phase of being a crone and what that archetype means to you. Oh, I um, I, I think it means I'm 63. Just, yeah, uh, 63. 
uh, my hair turned white ages and ages ago because I'm in a small town. I'm not quite invisible, but I'm almost invisible. I remember clearly the first few times you know, I went to a counter and couldn't get anybody to wait on me. I mean, the invisibility of being an aging woman, I could go on and on and on. Um, but I've begun to enjoy it, the invisibility, and enjoy other women my age and older who have um, – thrown a lot of caution to the wind and I have a terrific 87 year old mother who is still teaching me about crondom that, that woman is shameless and she's just so funny and has a very healthy libido at 87 so she's one of my main teachers in all of this but crondom means I don't know uh, hanging up a lot of clothes that I used to wear for certain effect and um, making peace with a face that doesn't look like it did and doesn't look as bad as it's going to and uh, and finding the hilarity in all that with other survivors, with other people, you know, who are in my stage of life or older, preferably older. So crone, crown, receiving your crown and, and uh Going ahead and playing with the um, the archetype. If I could just train a raven to sit on my arm, I think I'd be. <laughs> okay, Barbara. Our program's called Insights at the Edge. And I'm always curious to know what the edge is that somebody might be working with in their life, whether that's in terms of their creative life or in terms of their interior world. What's the edge that you're currently exploring? I have two, and we probably don't have time for me to, to do much with them. The, the Professionally, the edge is finding ways to communicate with people who don't identify with any religious tradition hmm. because I love to go some depth with people, and and yet to meet people who do not have a particular language for going deep or a particular community in which they go deep, it's um, it's a wonderful edge. It's both stultifying, kind of shuts me up sometimes. I don't know how to proceed. And it's also really, really um, a, a wonderful learning edge. Currently, I've decided, um, along with a wonderful now dead German writer named Dorte Serla, that uh, nature and eroticism and suffering and community and joy are all places that human beings have always and will always go deep. So I'm interested in those now as spiritual topics, if you will. Um, so there's that. And then the other one we've already talked about, which is the edge of shifting gears for the final third of life, which is very clarifying, and uh, finding how that changes my priorities. Yeah, I'm curious to hear a little bit more about that shift in priorities. What would you say are your priorities at this point? Well, they're, they're, they are not things the world rewards anymore. So it's um, a, a real pull move from a, a very public life to not a more private life, but a more personal life, a more intimate life, a life with fewer people in it with whom I share more meals and tell more stories. It's a life of moving from a lot of attention to social action to, I think very appropriately, more inner work, um, more of whatever it is that will see me through to the end of my life. Um, it is uh, a shift in priorities from doing a lot not so well to wanting to do a very few things well. And then and then I've just got a huge hunger to flee my competence and learn new things and find ways to be a beginner. Every year I get older, I want to be a beginner at something else. So um, so the priorities shift, but it's it's all like a setting sun because none of them will, will be rewarded in the same ways I've been rewarded by my busier, more uh, productive self. And what supports you in making that shift to a set of priorities that aren't necessarily considered, you know, doesn't fulfill some ambition in terms of getting attention in the outer world? Hmm. Um, um, 
mentors, authors, you know, everybody from Abigail Thomas, whose latest book just arrived, What Comes Next and What, How to Like It. I think she's, I think it's called something like that. But I read, I read uh, lots of memoir. Um, I read, um, uh, people who can help me in this transition. I have friends my age uh, with whom I've begun to plan regular adventures that we do together to go um, find new things. I am partnered well to a man who's 14 years my elder, and he teaches me things. And then I pay attention to what happens in my yard, and I, I watch that cycle the priorities of the yard in summer are different from the priorities of the yard in winter. And so I'm noting the ways in which the things that grow here conserve themselves as the days grow shorter, taking some lessons from the chestnut trees, those that are left. Okay, I'm just going to ask you one final question, which is we talked briefly about fear and you talked about fear as a, a type of, I don't think you exactly used the phrase as like a guardian at the gate, but can keep us away from what we're afraid of letting in and how important it's become in your life to let in instead of leaving out. And I'm just curious how you might help someone who's listening to this conversation, and I know this is abstract, we don't know who this listener is, but who still has this sense of, you know, I hear this, but how do I work with my fear? My fear of going deeper into darkness, my own internal darkness, literal darkness, metaphoric darkness. How do I work with that fear? Yeah, my my answer to that is respect your fear. I, it's probably not a satisfying answer, but I just think the worst thing in the world is to tell someone that, that he or she shouldn't feel the way he or she feels. I, I'm a great respecter of, of the soul, and the soul um, not only knows what it's capable of at the moment, but the soul is also capable of great curiosity about what's beyond the boundary that is laid out. I think I think that's true. So I, if someone is listening and saying, I can't, I can't, I can't, I'd say, then, then why don't you um, be where you are? But if you're listening to this show, you're curious. If, you're, if you tune into this show regularly, you want, you want to um, lift up your foot and put it down maybe an inch further out than it is. So, so I, I think the, the very best way, perhaps, to be respectful of someone listening who feels that way is to say, respect that. Um, respect your own wisdom and um, stay curious. Keep an ear open for the unexpected invitation. Barbara Brown Taylor, the author of the book Learning to Walk in the Dark, as well as a memoir of faith called Leaving Church and a beautiful book called An Altar in the World, A Geography of Faith. Barbara, I, I am so appreciative of your willingness to come and participate on the show, Insights at the Edge. Thank you so much. And thank you for your beautiful writing and your beautiful work and your courage to be true to yourself. I, uh, I'm a great admirer of yours. Ah, uh, Tammy, and I of you. Thank you for the opportunity. Soundstrue.com, many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.